Hey, everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. 1938, a year in review. back to the Guild of Films podcast. I'm Christian, as always, and I'm here to tell you, along with my friend Brett, hello, Brett. Hello, hello. About the year that was, 1938. Now, if you have listened to our previous podcast, you already heard of the 10 Best Picture nominees that we spoke about, with the big winner being You Can't Take It With You. We talked about all the Best Picture noms, as I said. We said which ones we liked, we ranked them, and we had a special guest on. And that special guest is back with us. Say hello, everybody, once more to John. Hello, John. Hello. I'm excited to be back. Back in 1938. Yeah. Well, thank you for being back. I know that you watched a bunch of movies along with us um, for this particular episode. So thank you for doing that. Because I've been keeping up with your letterbox, too. Yes. I've been, I've been, yeah, it's been fun sort of focusing on this was a specific year uh, like this. And so, yeah, like uh, like normal, we're going to get into some movies that we liked that were not necessarily nominated for anything. In fact, as Brett told us beforehand, none of the four films that we'll be talking about today got a nomination at the Oscars. So it, it first time have we done this before? I, I don't think I'm I'm almost certain that every time we've had at least one pop up somewhere. So I, I think this is the first time we've had that happen. Could be wrong, right. but yeah. Yeah. And um, if you're also being like, well, no, don't you guys normally do six? Well, we're doing four today because we did so many for the last one. We got four. So there you go. Should I go ahead and take it away? Yeah, you got our first film. So go ahead and take us away with that one. Do I do. All right. So our first film is one that is incredible, to say the least. It is one that is amazing. It is the best film, honestly, that I've seen fine it's the best film like a uh, probably top 10 top 20 top 15 top in my heart all right it is bringing a baby what is this movie about well uh when rose's uncle hingleblotter dies she inherits baby and baby turns out not to be an actual baby but a pig <laughs> that then the girls have to take care of shenanigans happen and thank you because i saw john laughing he knows what i'm talking about and brett is like what yes it, I mean, there's that a, should have been, that would have been an excellent sequel. Right. So there's like, there's my Golden Girls reference, but the OG bringing up baby is about a leopard, but we'll get to the leopard in a second. So it is about David Huxley played by Cary Grant, and he is a paleontologist trying for years to assemble his dinosaur, his brontosaurus. And he's like one bone close to getting it done. And after that, he can run off and get married to his lady friend whatever you would call her. Then he encounters Susan Vance, played by the incredible, my favorite actress of all time, Catherine Hepburn. She is our comic foil to him in this because a lot of shenanigans happen once she and him start interacting. After they do interact and after they meet, she calls him up and says, hey, my brother just gave me a tamed leopard. 
Yes, a leopard named Baby, played by Nissa. Shout out to Nissa. We love Nissa. And she thinks that he is a, she thinks that David is a zoologist that can tame this leopard and keep the leopard. And they go off to her aunt's house in the country. And a lot of shit happens because we're talking about a leopard here. And one of the most important things that happens that sort of gets them running around this entire uh, estate is that a dog, George, played by Skippy. Again, shout out to Skippy. And also shout out because I made Skippy a letterbox page a few years ago. So you're welcome for that, America. Um, but he takes the bone that David has so been wanting and hides the bone. And as they're looking for the bone, baby runs off. So now we have a loose leopard, two people chasing after a dog, and just a lot of stuff happening. It is a hilarious film, as I said. It has just been released on the Criterion Collection. Just buy it. I mean, if you've never seen this, just buy it. I don't think there's anybody who watches this and hates this movie. It is delightful as hell. Um, it has a great cast. This is Catherine Hepburn, honestly, at her best. I mean, she's obviously made some pretty remarkable things, but her being a comedian is top notch. And the chemistry she has here also with Cary Grant, some of the best. Um, they've worked together before, including this year, there's a film that they made, which we'll probably talk about um, in honorable mentions, but this is much better for them too. There's also, uh, let's see what the actors are here. Mae Robson is her aunt. One of my favorite people in this movie is Walter Cadlett as a constable who there's a whole scene in a police, uh, jail oh my god what's the word here police jail in a jail that's like my favorite scene in this whole thing Catherine fucking delivers and yeah it is a uh, i love this movie so much and ironically enough um i try and watch this every valentine's day my dvd copy died on me this year so technically i own three versions of this dvd amazon digital and criterion and i have no issue with that so it's kind of ironic because like two weeks after I had to buy the Amazon streaming one, they're like, hey, Criterion, guess what we're doing, kids? <laughs> and I literally started crying. So, yeah, that is bringing a baby. It is fun. It is delightful. And it's a little gay. I don't know. <laughs> we might get into that. Probably John shook his head. So... Okay, go. Actually, no, I want to hear from John first, because, John, you've seen this. I want to hear from the one who hasn't seen it last. I have seen this more times than I can count. And yes, I think it is a little bit gay. Um, that's a, For those who have not seen it, that's a line in the movie I, where Cary Grant um, says, I just went a little gay all of a sudden, which who hasn't? Um, and uh, so I love this movie. I've seen this, like I said, more times than I can count. Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn might be the best pairing of all, like, classic Hollywood stars. I mean, Bogey Bacall and Tracy and Hepburn, like Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn are the best in my opinion. Uh, and the best part about them is they work really well together. Like this is really like a kind of a slapstick screwball comedy, but you've got Philadelphia Story, which is really classic rom-com and Holiday, which is more dramatic. Uh, and uh, all of them work. And like Christian, like you said, the supporting cast of so this, uh, this time I was focusing a little more on the supporting cast because we have the awards at the end of the podcast. And I was trying to pay attention to that because this is a film that in my memory, Grant and Hepburn loom large. And the supporting cast is really, really fun in this mo movie. Um, I You mentioned Mae Robeson. I love as Aunt Elizabeth. 
Charles Ruggles as this hapless big game hunter is so funny. And Barry Fitzgerald is honestly better as the alcoholic gardener Gogarty in this than he was in Going My Way, which won him an Oscar. Uh, Yeah, like, but I mean, everything about this is better than Going My Way. Um, And it's a weirdly quotable movie. And I agree with you, Christian, the best scene in the film and possibly the funniest scene in any movie is the scene in the prison when she's like the leopard gang. And uh, I love it. And I just have to plug, my, this is my brother's favorite movie of all time. When he found out that I'm talking about it, he's very jealous. And so I want to say my brother Luke's favorite movie ever. Honestly though, watching that whole jail scene and stuff, just the second she gets out of there and she's like, let me just explain what's going to be happening. It's like, <laughs> it's so good. And to, and to think that she, up until this point is done like dramatic role, dramatic role, dramatic role. And then you get this and it's like, oh, this is what she should have been doing her entire career up until this point. Except Little Women, because I do love Catherine and Little Women. Yeah, but yeah, and it's weird because like this was not a successful film at the time, which is so odd, like that this was hurt her career and it's this perfect movie. And now Brett. Brett. You know, I, I just don't see it. I It's one of those that I've heard so many good things about. And I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, I have to do that at least once every like three podcasts. So, um, <laughs> but uh, no, this is, it's great. It, it, it's, it, I'll just, spoiler, it's not my favorite movie of the year, but it is perhaps the most enjoyable as far as like you sit down, you turn on a movie from 1938 this is one that's probably going to end up being the most rewatchable, the one that you want to show to other people um, and have them laugh along with. And, you know, Catherine Hepburn, our, in this podcast, our entire discussion of her has been primarily 60s and then on Golden Pond. Um, you know, we've talked about on Golden Pond. We've talked about Line in Winter. We've talked about um, the one from 62. Long um, Day's Long Journey. Day, yes, Long Day's Journey and Tonight very different performances from this as i'm watching this i'm like this is my favorite out of all of those i like like you said christian i have to agree i think her doing comedic roles here and even in holiday um which came out this year i I think this is the superior of the two by far but in in both those performances she shows just this, this great comedic timing and prowess and whatnot um i agree with the scene in the jail i think is pretty terrific but those early scenes where Grant and Hepburn, their characters are just like starting to interact. I think those are just absolute comedy gold. Um, and that screwball nature where she's in his car and he's trying to explain like, no, this is my car. You get out and, and we move. And she's just like wrecking the whole thing. Absolutely hilarious. Um, where they rip each other's closing at the ball and they see Mr. Peabody there and they're trying to slip past. That is just like, the, the perfect amount of like comedic awkwardness and it, and it works in that scene to where it doesn't feel uncomfortable. Um, and so, yeah, their chemistry together is obviously fantastic. Um, I agree with something with that. You said, John about Barry Fitzgerald and this being a much better role for him than the one he won for in 1944. I completely agree. I, I love those scenes between him and May Robson where they don't really know what the hell is going on. And Grant is just like so frantic because he has to find this bone that goes into his, um, is it a brontosaurus? Is that what it is? Uh, so yeah. Um, and I'll see the scene at the very end. I, it, how does it end any differently from that? 
you know, um, not to spoil anything, but it is wild. It, it's a little bit frantic. And of course they end up and I think it's actually kind of profound in a way um, that, you know, this is a relationship that on paper makes zero sense. It, it just, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, Cary Grant has that, that kind of line where he's like, that day was the best day of my life. Um, cause it, it was so, it was frank, it was different. It was fun. And, you know, and that's really kind of profound to me that, that this person who he originally could not stand granted him that, and he grows to realize that, and that that's who he wants to be with. And so I, I apologize. There's a little bit of support. I feel like, you know, going in, that they're going to end up together, but, um, you know, it, it, it's a lot of fun. I think it's one that, like I said, you could watch on and on. You both mentioned that you've seen it a lot. Um, Christian, I know you went and nabbed up the criterion and it's one that I'd definitely like to add to my collection at some point. Um, the last thing I want to touch on is that when we did our 1972 podcast, Christian, you mentioned the parallels between this and what's up doc. Very easy to see when you're watching the movie, like overall, the plots are very different, but the, the similarities between Barbara Streisand in that movie and Catherine Hepburn here and the central relationship between the two of them and the different antics they get themselves into. Very similar. And I, I, what's up doc is one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And this is certainly just a all timer of a screwball, obviously that um, really holds up extremely well. On the criterion um, on the, the bonus features, I Peter Bogdanovich does the commentary on this movie as well. Nice. Yeah, cool. which when I because I flipped it over to see what all the special features were and stuff, and it's like commentary by Bogdanovich. I'm like, yes, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. It definitely uh, is an inspiration for a lot of screwball comedies, I guess, that would come later, and especially What's Up, Doc? Because Catherine just Catherine and Barbara both just wreak havoc for these mild manner, leave me alone type guys. I don't want anything to do with you, and then my favorite part of all shit happens and in this case we have a leopard on the loose and you know i can't give you anything but love baby yeah she's absolutely terrific I, I, do we do we agree obviously she she should have been in the running for best actress this year i mean we'll get to personal awards but i, I think um, we can all agree yes. on that pretty readily 100%. So. yes I'm not, I will admit, I'm not quite there that this is my favorite Katherine Hepburn role. I think Philadelphia Story gets that, that prize, but this would be like, yeah, there's, I don't understand why she wasn't nominated for this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like is I said, still, is, is this still too when she's labeled box office poison? This is the year she was labeled box office poison. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> what do they know? It's interesting, and I think I bring this quote up a lot, but it's like, this is still during the Depression. Why wouldn't you just want to go to a movie, sit down, see something funny like this? Right. You know, I could, The only reason I can see people complaining about it today, maybe, is because, oh, why am I caring about some hoity-toity rich white people and their mm. issues? I mean, who cares? So, like, Philadelphia Story, Holiday, Bring It Baby, Line in Winter, Catherine Hepburn is always at her best when she's playing characters that have too much money. <laughs> from what i've seen i definitely agree with that um you know john brought up brought up a point before we started this podcast that this is on um the the 2007 both rankings actually of the afi top 100 list which i think is significant because 
comedies, you know, and especially Screwball, obviously they're, they're well revered, but as far as when it comes to lists like that, and especially the Oscars, they, they don't get the same attention that something like a, a drama or, you know, a little more, you know, awards friendly. And it, it's certainly not the only one on the list. I mean, Philadelphia stories on there. Um, it happened one night is on there, but it is kind of significant. This is number 88 on the most recent ranking, which as Christian said, when we started was up from the first ranking. So um, it's definitely held up in a lot of ways. It's what it deserves. And again, I will say um, no Oscar nominations here at all. Though like uh, Christian, you had mentioned earlier with George, whose real name was Skippy the dog how impressive his uh his imdb page is through and you create boxes, which i need to check out because he's in the thin man and the awful truth in addition to bringing it baby so he was definitely not box office poison apparently <laughs> i think too last year when i was like fixing up his letterbox page i also fixed up um nessa's as well because mm. i'm like give credit where credit is due to these two animals <laughs> Also, Nissa playing two characters in this movie. Yes. I don't know if we mentioned that, but yeah, polar opposites. So um, something else about this movie that I, Howard Hawks, you know, directed this movie and Howard Hawks is one of the most like, has some of the biggest range of a filmmaker director that I've seen. I mean, he, he did comedies like this. He did fantastic Westerns, um, war movies, uh, the, the guy did everything, which is just so impressive. Scarface, yeah, it's it's kind of unreal how much range he had and the, the type of movies that he was directing. I mean, if, okay, so again, fans, go to his letterbox page. The first, I mean, the first couple of rows here, you have His Girl Friday and Bringing a Baby, both comedies. Then you have The Big Sleep, Noir. Noir. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, musical. Rio Bravo, Scarface, Red River, Only Angels Have Wings. It goes on. It honestly, the range. Unreal. All of those are good movies. Like <laughs> there's no, there's no skips in that entire list. Right. Yeah. I mean, we'll get to Red River somebody. Like, I consider that one of the greatest Westerns ever made. And then you were talking about this and his girl Friday and like some of the greatest screwballs ever made, or at least generally considered that way. So it's pretty, pretty wild, but very cool. Also, he produced The Thing from Another World, but I always associate him being like the director of that, even though he's not. I'm willing to bet he had some significant say in that movie. So Yeah. Yeah. And his only Oscar nomination is for Sergeant York. <laughs> whole list of movies and Sergeant York's with a pick. Which is a movie you can skip. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I haven't seen Sergeant York. I'll, I'll say that, but I have seen quite a few of his movies that we listed earlier and that's that's something the oscars would do so yeah uh bringing up baby is definitely one that i i think it's pretty clear we would all recommend very highly um any further thoughts on this film before we move on to our next one i have one kind of weird but cool bit of trivia about one of the stars of this so may robes new plays on elizabeth um is the earliest born person to be an oscar nominee uh, so she was born in 1858. She was nominated when she was 75 for Lady for a Day. So chronologically, she is the oldest person to have ever been an Oscar nominee. Hmm. That is interesting. That's cool. Very nice. Also a good movie too, Lady for a Day. Great movie. Perfect. Awesome. 
Well, our next movie is one that uh, John picked for this podcast. So, John, you want to take us away with this one? I will indeed. So our next film is The Lady Vanishes, which is directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And the film, in typical Hitchcockian fashion, starts out kind of on a misdirect. Initially, a group of travelers are stuck at a ski lodge due to an avalanche, and we get an introduction to a group of figures from all different walks of life. One of the principal uh, figures is Iris, who's played by Margaret Lockwood in the film, who is struggling with her upstairs musician neighbor, Gilbert, who's played by Michael Redgrave. Uh, murder happens to a side character, and we don't see who the murderer is, except that the victim is playing a song on the street, which is enjoyed by Miss Froy, who is played by Dame May Whitty. Uh, when all of the guests begin to onboard um, the train leaving the lodge, Miss Froy and Iris become fast friends. But after Iris falls asleep, she awakes to find that Miss Froy is gone, and no one other than Iris remembers seeing her. This sets in motion a high-speed series of misdirects, red herrings, and genuinely unexpected adventures as we learn whether or not Iris is imagining Miss Froy, and if she isn't, what happened to her? Uh, I won't go in more because it's Hitchcock and you want the spoiler. You don't want the spoilers. You want to um, experience it, especially if you're experiencing Lady Vanishes because it's a really good movie. This is the second time I've seen this movie this year. Um, and while there are other films from early in Hitchcock's career I enjoy, this is the first one I unequivocally love in the way that I feel about some of his later work. Um, the entire cast is so fun. Uh, if you um, are not super familiar, like I, I did a series on my blog about Margaret Lockwood earlier this year and I was not super familiar with her work. She's so impressive and a lot of her like later work is very different from this. She did a lot of really great melodramas with James Mason in the 40s and it's they're like amazing and very campy in the best way possible. So I highly Somebody say it. my name. I was hoping <laughs> for that because I was hoping. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a really spry movie, and I like Michael Redgrave. He's so uh, juicy as this, like, caddish leading man. But the entire cast is just really good. And uh, you've got Caldecott and Charters, which was the introduction of these characters, which would then be on radio and films for decades afterwards as a sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern pairing randomly in the side. But May Whitty's good. Catherine Lacey's great as this sort of mischievous nun. I, I liked, I really liked this movie. I, I don't, I'm hoping you guys like this because this was really, I enjoyed this one. I've also never seen this before. So this is my first time. So Christian, do you want to go first? Oh, okay. Yeah. In that case, yeah, shoot. I'll go. All right. No. All right. I love this movie too. Um, I took a Hitchcock class a few years ago. Great class. Honestly, I don't know if we watched this. I think I watched this later that night, like after the class, but I've always really liked it. Um, the suspense is really good, even if it, I mean, it takes a little bit to get into it. Like John said, sort of that misdirect of what this is really about. But once the mystery starts to unfold, it's like, what the hell is happening on this train? Um, I actually really like the production value of this. And it's saying a lot because it just, it mostly takes place on a train, obviously. But you feel sort of that claustrophobia that Hitchcock is really, really good at directing with. Um, I will say that Hitchcock is also one of my favorite directors. If we spoke in our last episode we did, uh, 2002, where Spielberg is more of my modern favorite director and Hitchcock is more of my classical one. But this, yes, I absolutely love The Lady Vanishes. I didn't get to see the Criterion edition of it. I did. I saw it on the Criterion channel though, but I didn't get to see all the bonus features of this. Um, but no, and, and this is one of his ones that he did while he was still in England. And it just is so good. I'm glad he honestly didn't remake this. 
like he did with like the man who knew too much. I will say that. Um, but yeah, I, I love this one. I could watch this one too, like John, twice in a year if I had to. Might do it. I don't know. Um, uh, oh, 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 okay. Also, after we watched this, we ended up watching a movie called Flight Plan, which is basically Jodie Foster on a plane. Same situation. Where's my daughter? Well, you never had a daughter, ma'am. Yes, I did. Yeah. So it's an interesting movie. I mean, you can't compare the two, but yeah, Lady Vanishes is good. It's great, honestly. And now Brett. Yeah, this was another good pick. There's another one I enjoyed. Um, I, it, you go into Hitchcock, you, Hitchcock, you expect to enjoy it. And it, it's always nice when it kind of fulfills his expectations. Because I was a little bit worried at the beginning of this one. Because like Christian said, it, it does. it's taking that time to kind of build up who these people are and these different characters. And at the beginning, you don't really know why. You know, you don't know why this can become significant. Um, you know, it's kind of showing certain interactions that will play later into the plot and that you're not really thinking of, at least I wasn't thinking of there at the beginning. Um, in the spirit of Barry Fitzgerald, who should have got more attention for bringing up baby than going my way, Paul Lucas should have got more attention for this than he did for Watch on the Rhine, um, which we've discussed before. It's one of my least favorite best actor wins, honestly. But um, I, I think in addition to everybody else, you know, Lockwood and Redgrave and especially May Whitty, um, I, I think he does some really awesome work here as a character who definitely changes as the film goes on, you learn more about and takes on a different role. Um, but yeah, I agree on, on the production value. And I think what I, I will say, this is, it's definitely not among my favorite Hitchcocks. It's, you know, it, and it, I think he would obviously develop things later on that made him what he was, but I think we do see some of those early handprints here and some of the suspense and the mystery that is created through this little twist that comes about. Um, and, you know, I, I think one thing that this may have among some of his other movies is that it, it's, it's pure fun. I mean, it's, it, it is intense. It is a mystery. It's something that you have to be watching and pay attention to, to really get everything. But that's at the same time, you know, it's one that like you kind of get roped in with, Lockwood and with Redgrave as they're kind of going through together and trying to figure everything out. And then you've got um, some little scenes that kind of verge on action near the end. And so um, definitely has some what he would do later. But I, I think overall, it's not a lighthearted movie, but I, I think it has a little bit lighter tone in that it's one that you're not, you're, you're kind of meant to enjoy. It's, it's a lot different than something like The Lodger or even the 1934, The Man Who Knew Too Much, which are very dark in some ways this one has some dark content, but it's still one where it's a little bit, you know, you kind of flow with it. You enjoy it. You kind of just sit in with what you're watching and let it kind of happen. And so, and that is far from a bad thing. I really think it's actually impressive that he was able to kind of mix those two in this kind of early-ish period of his career. So I would highly recommend as well. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, like I said, not among my favorites of Hitchcock, but a lot here that you can find and enjoy and see that would come up later on. There's like that that wicked English humor going on in here that you know, Hitchcock likes to throw in there, which I like too. Also, I remember something from my class that we did 
with this where our professor explained, which now that I'm thinking about it, we did watch this in class, where he explained that you never really learn of the two countries that are at war or what sort of thing this is. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no definite of like, is this a German British situation? I mean, obviously they're British characters, but are they fighting with Germany or is it just a made up country? Do we really care? Do we need to know this? Like there's more important things here, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of a cool backdrop, just kind of the political thing going on here. And that even though we don't know, you know, who the, who the other country is, who we might you know be looking at war here with, it, there is kind of a political backdrop there that becomes a little bit more clear as it comes on, which is kind of cool. It also, I mean, that seems to be the running theme of a lot of the films that we've watched for 1938. Um, not just, I mean, it's a couple that are coming up, but also last week or last time would have been Grand Illusion and all these other films that sort of have this this precipice of war, even though the the world is not at war yet, which is fascinating. Obviously, this is a fictional fictionalized sort of version, but it's fascinating there. I, I and I, I will say, like to. I mean, at this point, Hitchcock was starting to do more of the the thriller genre, but I, I love I, I love the idea of the mystery. The, like the first twenty minutes feels more like Grand Hotel than it feels like anything else, uh, which is great. I love Grand Hotel, but I just I, that that was I, I rewatching this again. Uh, I was struck by how jolted that is and how it kind of it lulls you into this different sense, and I like that. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I. It was so much that I thought about the beginning of the film so much differently after finishing the film than I did when I was actively watching those scenes in the movie, for sure. Um, yeah, we've discussed quite a few Hitchcocks so far, and this is obviously another one that um, we definitely have high marks for. Any further thoughts on this one before we move on to our next film? I have another trivia. Yes. I, I'm, I, I'm coming armed with them today. Um, so May Whitty, so it's mainly about actresses named May is the trivia. Um, May Whitty was the first actress to ever be a Dane commander of the British Empire. Interesting. Not an Oscar winner, but, uh, but she was an Oscar Emmy, but she was, she was the first, like, I mean, now we take that for granted with Judy Dench and Helen Mirren and everybody, but she was the first actress they ever did that for. That's interesting because I was looking, I, I had it pulled up on IMDb here on the poster. She is listed as Dame May Whitty which I thought was cool. So yeah, that's really interesting. Throwback to when we used to do fun facts <laughs> over these films. I love these when they just come up every now and then. So perfect. Well, that is Lady Vanishes. Um, our next film is the one that I picked. And it's actually another one similar to, to John with Lady Vanishes that I've seen twice in the last year. And it is the French film Port of Shadows. And so similar to Grand, Grand Illusion, as, as one might guess, this is another one that's really acclaimed for being part of the kind of French poetic realism movement. I personally think it's one of, not the best film from there. I, I think there are actually multiple that are better. But as far as stylistically, I think this is one that's really good to watch if you want to get a sense of what that time was all about. Because the fogginess kind of played a role in a lot of these films and here so it, it shows up not only in the cinematography but in the narrative they mentioned the fog throughout kind of the movie um like grand illusion this one just stars jean gabin as jean 
he is a soldier who has kind of defected from the French army and has ended up in this port town and is looking to get away. He knows that the army is going to be coming after him because he um, deserted. And along the way, he encounters some very interesting people, most notably Nellie, who is played by Michelle Morgan. Um, Nellie is a young woman that he falls in love with. And she has a lot of really interesting people in her life. She's got um, Sabel, who is her uncle, who she lives with and has really a very creepy, demeaning nature and obsessive nature over her. Um, there's Lucian, uh, who is kind of the villain of the movie. He's kind of a gangster who had some quarrels with uh, Nellie's boyfriend, who has actually gone missing in this time. And so Jean kind of gets wrapped up into this while falling in love with Nellie. And it results in some really interesting interactions that he kind of gets involved with um, while he's kind of staying in this port town, getting ready to get on a ship and leave elsewhere. And so, um, like I said, I don't think this is the greatest movie, a you know, French movie from these kind of few years where this um, era was really taking off. But I do find it really interesting and really fascinating. Um, Jean Gabin, throughout all these films, has just become one of my favorite uh, actors of this era and this kind of classical time period. And I think he's um, as terrific here as he was in Grand Illusion as this character who is really fascinating, who we don't really know a whole lot about. Um, it's not even very clear what he's done to end up this. It's not told outright that he has deserted. It's kind of something we figure out from the images and what comes about as we go along. Um, I think the ensemble is pretty solid. Um, Morgan as Nellie's gray, but I think Michelle Simone who plays her uncle Zabel is downright fantastic in this movie. He early on, we have an idea about him and he comes off as a little bit more kind of like a, a little bit spineless and kind of like a interesting, but over time we learn that he's a lot more sinister and the way that Simone is able to portray both of those is really fascinating for me. But obviously th there are things that have not aged well about this movie. My biggest criticism is obviously that, you know, Jean, Jean Gabin is very much a grown man here. And Nellie's character, they state directly in the movie, is 17. Um, and so they're very interesting narrative of that relationship that it's definitely problematic in some ways. It's implied through the film that they are romantic, they sleep together and all that stuff. But I think it's well directed. I think it's really well shot. I think the cinematography is, you know, kind of... Um, interesting in a way that you it, it's, it's not typically you know what we might associate with great photography it's not it's not bright it's not um it's black and white so it's not colorful but it's really kind of doled out in an intentional way which i think is really interesting so um uh, fascinating movie like john said it's really fatalistic and kind of gets into that those themes of oncoming war that was especially felt in france and so i think it does a nice job kind of presenting that time period in that way thoughts yeah i'm in i i'm on a similar page in terms of i i respect it more than like it i i, I and i do like some of marcel carnier's films i like some children of paradise but this one was just i was kind of in the middle of it, it has element it felt weird because it had elements of things that i like i like film noir i like cold films but and i like the the i like the art direction like it was the art direction is cool in this movie but I was just, it, it was just in the middle for me. I, I felt like other than, um, and you, I forgot the actor's name, but the one who played the, the, 
the Guardian, Michelle, you, you mentioned it, Brett, but Michelle, Michelle Simone. Uh, but uh, I think that's what it was. But mm-hmm. otherwise, the rest of the, the side characters felt inter- too interchangeable to me. And I also feel like the ending was shortchanged. I, I wanted like 15 more minutes from the middle put onto the ending because there's a lot of things happening in the last 15 minutes of this movie. And I don't say this a lot, but I, I wanted a longer movie. Mm. Uh, I feel like padding it out a little bit, especially at the end, would have been better for me. <clears throat> Bonjour. Bonjour. Say it. It was fine. <laughs> I knew it. I mean, I literally learned what the plot of this movie is when Brett was telling it to me. So um, there's that. I texted you halfway through this and I'm like, what is this movie about? You literally asked me, well, how far are you in? I'm like halfway through this movie. I, I'm not a big, I'm clearly not a big fan of this style of French cinema. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have much to say about it, I guess. The cinematography was nice. I will give it that. The shadows, the fog, the, the port of shadows. <laughs> I don't know. Also, the the woman did not seem like she was 17 years old. She looked like French Greta Garbo in her 40s. I will say that. But that's my contribution to this. I'm sorry. I did not care for it. You mean like every 17-year-old in every movie ever? Yes, like every... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But at least I saw it. And it's on Canopy. And if if anybody has Canopy and would like to see this film. Yeah, it is okay. I don't know. I... I actually do agree because I I think narratively she does seem a little bit more grown up, which maybe helps a little bit with the relationship that she has with the older man a little bit. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know. It it is something that Marcel Carnet, he did one um, called Daybreak, which came out a year later, which we I think we briefly mentioned on that podcast, which I I actually think it is. That movie and that movie I actually do really enjoy. It's terrific. I actually think that it is might be you know, Jean Gabin's best performance, but I don't know. I really like movies about like characters who are a little bit mysterious and far, like very flawed. And this one, it's not always outright about that, but deep down, you know, like there's some stuff going on here that interesting. And we have a dog in this movie too. I keeping with the trend with bring up baby, the dog in this movie is just such a loyal companion. Uh, so want to give him a shout out as well, but it would have been better with the leopard though. <laughs> not wrong i um the set i can we talk about the set design for this because i think that's the move i know it's a weird thing to call as the best thing in a movie and it sounds like a backhanded compliment but it's i don't mean it that way i think it is really beautiful and it's apparently it was uh it was not shot on location but it very much looks like it mm-hmm. for a 1938 movie is very odd because everything always i always find that 1938 movies always look like you can see the cardboard scene in the background uh, uh for like those sunsets and stuff so i thought it was really beautiful beautifully shot even if it i uh, yeah i wasn't feeling this one no yeah i agree and it's even like the a lot of it takes place in kind of a rundown shack um kind of on the edge of town and even then you know going in you know what kind of place that is you know the kind of folks that frequent there um which are, like you said, definitely interchangeable, but kind of have, are the people you would expect to be in a place like that. So that makes sense too. I will say, Brett, you do like this style of French films, don't you? 
I do. Yeah. I mean, like I watched uh, like six of these earlier this year. Um, I will say Grand Illusion is the best um, in my opinion. It, it's a classic, but ones like this um, Daybreak is up there as well. Rules of the game. Um, there's one called uh, La Talance, which is like really well revered, but I was not a huge fan of that's the one, but yeah, I really do. I, this is, these are often considered, you know, precursors of film noir and kind of like Christian said, I can absolutely see that here. And so I think I definitely respect them for that as well. And also my favorite movie of all time is Casablanca. I think these are so, we're so influential for that movie. Um, we talked about it with grand illusion. I think even here, with the relationship between the two and how kind of fatalistic and the way it ends, even though it's not the same as Casablanca, it's not the way you would expect maybe from a 1930 movie. So I think it's kind of influential in that way too. Michelle Morgan, especially uh, feels like an Ingrid Bergman. There, there's a lot of synergy there. Yeah. And even with the way she's shot, you know, I, I have, uh, once again, I have IMD pulled up and they have obviously screenshots in the movie and they've got this one where it's kind of like a cloudy close-up of her face and it's exactly the way that Bergman was shot in Casablanca. So absolutely. Perfect. Well, Port of Shadows, definitely one that uh, the person who picked it has more reverence for. But uh, if you're really interested in French cinema at that time, I think it's worth checking out. So any final thoughts on this one before we move on to our final film? I will say, when I told Toby we were watching this, I said, Toby, we're watching Brett's pick now. He said, okay. And I said, it's in French. And he goes, oh, God. To which I texted and responded, it's a gorgeous language. So Indeed, listen yeah. to Bong Joon-ho, One Inch Barrier. Je parle français très petit un peu. Wow. I was not expecting that. That was amazing. I feel personally victimized. <laughs> uh, yo quiero comprar... La ropa. I do Duolingo. <laughs> Very nice. Well, as we often do with years like this that had more than five nominees, we did a Twitter poll um, where each of us picked a movie and um, Twitter decided what we were going to watch. And so John's pick actually won this time. So John, hey, how about you take us away have- here? Do you have the list of what they were so we can lead up to what it won? They were. They, uh, so my pick was Holiday. The other, you know, Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant's um, romantic comedy from that year. Christian, yours was Olympia, the um, 1936 Olympics. The, the first By Lenny Riefenstahl, we could have gotten really controversial. <laughs> but no, uh, Twitter decided that uh, John's film that he picked was the one to discuss over those two. So John, take us away with this one. Yes, we're going to move from Lenny Reifenstahl to A Slight Case of Murder, directed by <laughs> Lloyd Bacon, which is a Warner Brothers comedy from 1938. So um, the plot of this film, um, Prohibition has ended. And as a result, bootlegger Remy Marco, who's played by Edward G. Robinson, has the ability to take his beer brewing business into the legitimate. The only problem is Marco makes terrible beer. A problem that consumers can actually express now that they have options at the bar. As a result, several years after Prohibition is lifted, Marco is broke and his yes-men cronies haven't told him the reason is that his beer is terrible. A weird solution seems to show up when four dead mobsters appear in Marco's home, all of whom have the same amount of money Marco needs to keep his brewery afloat. I'm not going to spoil too much... uh, 
uh, beyond that, because a slight case of murder, a lot of the twists uh, are where the comedy is coming from. But uh, suffice it to say that Marco's troubles begin to compound when he finds out his daughter's fiance just happens to be a police officer who definitely would have an interest in the four dead mobsters in Marco's attic. Uh, I picked A Slight Case of Murder for two reasons. One, I love a crime film. I, I know I mentioned earlier, I love film noir. Um, it's my favorite genre. And this is one of the only American films of 1938 that was critically well-liked and um, also as a crime subplot, which is weirdly lacking for a, a decade that otherwise was full of gangster films. Um, the other reason was that I love Edward G. Robinson. I think he's a brilliant actor. I, I was tweeting about this the other day and it's criminal that he was never nominated for an Oscar. And in this regard, I wasn't disappointed. Robinson does such a fun job of kind of skewering his tough guy persona as Marco, this hapless, good-hearted mobster who has ambition and drive, if not the wherewithal to hire men who will tell him the truth. Uh, he steals the film, which is an accomplishment as the supporting cast is also solid. Ruth Donnelly is really good as his social climbing wife. Um, you have Margaret Hamilton in a blink in her, you'll miss it role as the orphanage has mistress. And just in general, I think great comedies are underappreciated when it comes to Oscar conversations. And that's what this movie and particularly Robinson, it's fun to talk about in terms of the movies that Oscar forgot um, because oftentimes Oscar is forgetting comedies. Yeah, um, this was definitely another new one for me. Um, and it's actually one I wasn't familiar with until uh, you picked it for the Twitter poll. And um, this, I have to say, this is the one where I'm kind of down the middle on. You know, I, I, there were definitely aspects of it that really worked for me. I, I like when it goes, really leans into the comedic aspects, which is why, partially why Ruth Donnelly was the one that really stuck out to me. I, I think every time she's on screen, she's really funny. And in some ways it, it's kind of like a, it's very much a wife, you know, mother role, but I think she does have some really good comedic bits and timing that really work. But um, I also do agree on Edward G. Robinson. I do think he's really strong as a comedic force here. And there, there's kind of that running joke throughout the film that you mentioned about the beer is that everybody knows it's terrible except for him. And the scene where he finally tries the beer is that sequence to me is probably my favorite part of the movie because he's almost like, he won't, he won't believe it. He's like, you guys got to try this. Like, please try this. And they all know it's bad. So they're like, no, I, I, I don't want to try it. But they're trying to play it off as like, well, no, I'm good. No, I'm, they all know it's terrible. Um, which is really, it's, it's really interesting to see a movie take on that aspect because, you know, his beard, the significance of it was that for a lot of people, that's all they had during prohibition. So they drank it. Now they have other options. So they're like, yeah, we're good. Um, that aspect is really funny to me. And it, I really like that it kind of dives into that. What didn't work so much for me is the more kind of gangster stuff with like the dead bodies and whatnot until the end, you know, in the end where he brings in his, you know, and I, I don't want to get too deep into it, but they finally kind of come to terms with that in the narrative. It becomes funny, but otherwise it felt a little bit kind of thrown in at times, Obviously, he he's involved with something that is major in the kind of that crime syndicate, and you have to include it in some ways. But it felt a little bit scattered when that was brought in amongst everything else, including his family drama with his his daughter and um, her her wanting to marry a cop, and you know and whatnot. But 
overall, I think it's, you know, I think it's a fun watch overall. Like it's not one that I absolutely did not dislike, but there were certainly times where I was like kind of getting jumbled with some of the things that were going on, but Edward G. Robinson, I agree. I, I think he should have won an Oscar for Double Indemnity, and he should have had multiple nominations. And Ruth Donnelly, I really enjoyed here as well. So, um, I like this movie. I don't think I loved it, and I honestly feel that I should have. Um, but going into it, I didn't look up anything about this, so I thought it was going to be like a pure gangster drama. And then it immediately turns into a comedy. And I think that's maybe why it threw me off a little bit and why I feel like I probably should see this again. Um, just because I, I, again, I was thinking it was gonna be a gangster movie, but it was funny in you know most parts. Um, the, the scene where, I forgot who, is trying to beer in front of him and is totally like, this is awful. This is, yeah. That actually made me full, hard, full heartedly laugh. Uh, that and also uh, seeing the Margaret Hamilton thing. I was like, oh my God, I was the, I was the once upon a time in Hollywood meme. I'm like, look who it is. But yeah, it's a good movie. And like I said, I would definitely see it again. And this time, and now that I know that it's a comedy, I'm going to put that into perspective of it. But it was an interesting choice and one that I've never heard of before. So thank you, John, for that. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, what is a slight case of murder? What, what is this? We could be watching Holiday or Lenny Riefenstahl for whatever <laughs> reason. I wanted to see that, I guess. I don't know. Ignore me. But yeah, thank you for picking this one. And thank you to your listeners for picking this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you, uh, Christian, you mentioned that. I, I'm curious what you two think of when actors do that, when they sort of take, because this was not the only time that actors were doing that, even in the late 30s. Like you've got Garbo doing it in Ninochka, where you're totally upending what your expectation is of the actor. And I mean, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino still do that now, even Meryl Streep. And do you like when that happens? I, I'm curious because I'm always mixed and sometimes I really love it. And sometimes it's it's not successful. I think I like it. Um, so when I feel like watching a movie older like this, like you said, the Notchka with Greta Garbo and they're not actors that I've grown up with entirely. Another, like you said, Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, they're current, they're modern. I'm used to them being funny sometimes. I like it. I don't know. It gives them even more credibility for me too. It's like they have the range, you know? And Edward G. Robinson is pretty funny in this. Greta Garbo and Nanochka, you've heard that podcast, friends. She's incredible in that. Yeah. So. But yeah, I like when they do that. I like when they can get out of what they're typically known for, you know? Yeah. I agree. I, I I think most of the time I do like it. There are some times when it happens where I kind of like turn my head and I'm like, what? It, it's like, but a lot of the times when a, a character is playing around this genres, I typically do tend to appreciate them doing something different. That's definitely um, what I felt here. None of my issues with the movie come from Edward G. Robinson or, or any of those, you know, the actors or anything. Um, it's more so some of the narrative stuff. Like the, the kid that shows up, obviously we, we talked about, margaret hamilton but the reason she shows up is that you know um remy brings home this kid like to live with him um for i can't remember if it's like for a summer for a certain time period but looking back i'm like i almost forgot that kid was in the movie because he does play a role but it's just like that some of that stuff felt so kind of like thrown into me um and i also kind of wish what's that bobby Bobby jordan the actor he was like a, a kind of a big deal at the time uh, when you showed up, he was one of the dead end kids. 
oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was that. And I also, this is like a very minor thing. I kind of wish we had seen more of the bodies earlier. Um, Cause when they, they come in and there's like, there's like four bodies in there and whatnot. I, I kind of get that choice but at the same time. It, for a while that felt like kind of like a, a back end part of the movie for me. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's where kind of my Christmas, I still, like I said, I still enjoy the movie and absolutely have no issue with what Robinson is doing here. I think he's really funny and does it really well. So. Can I also um, go and co-sign your petition for the Edward G. Robinson for double indemnity Oscar? Cause that needs to happen. Yes. He's, he's amazing in that movie. And I'm sorry, Barry Fitzgerald, but no, no. Yeah. <laughs> this all would have been solved if they had nominated it, bringing it baby for more Oscars. <laughs> and it's one of those things where like, I will see that prop sometimes of like, who are those actors that never got nominated that should have? And he is constantly one that I see brought up. Awesome. Um, any final thoughts on a slight case of murder before we move on from there? Check it out. It's fun. It's short too. If you it haven't seen it, if you've never heard of it, you've never seen it. It's a short, fun little movie. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So now we will go ahead and jump into our section of honorable and dishonorable mentions from this year. Movies that we didn't discuss, but that we may have seen or that were significant. Um, and we'll provide brief thoughts as we go along. So we've actually got a, a decent amount here, I would say, for, for 1938. And our first one listed here is Alexander Nevsky. So I, I added this one, um, keeping with the theme of propaganda films, apparently, uh, between this and Olympia. Uh, we have uh, 1938. It's a, it's a Russian film by Sergei Eisenstein. It was his first sound film. It's impressive. Like, technically, it's impressive. It's clearly problematic considering what it's trying to promote um but it's impressive and it's okay in terms of plotting um if you like eisenstein like it's it's not quite as abstract as potemkin or october would be but it's 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 interesting all right awesome so our next one here is algiers which i didn't watch um but i have seen the film that it was kind of somewhat based on uh, Pepe Lamoco, which is yet another French film starring Jean Gabin, of course. So uh, did you, have either of you seen this one? I've seen Algiers. It's kind of, it, it introduced the world to Hedy Lamar, So it like, it, it has that going for it, but it's clearly Casablanca, but without the quality. Mm. Uh, and if you've ever, the, the reason I wrote it down was because if you've ever seen anyone impersonate Charles Boy, they're impersonating him in this movie. This is the movie that inspired Pepe Le Pew. Uh, his character obviously named Pepe Le Moco. Interesting. I just see it was nominated for four Oscars, including Boyer. So obviously significant from that year. Uh, next one we have here is Angels with Dirty Faces, which is one that I recently saw and I really liked. But there's one little thing that I would have changed that would have made me love it. Um, but very good James Cagney um, and whatnot. Really interesting movie um, that I enjoyed for sure. Perfect. So our next one is one that I'm pretty sure all three of us have seen and it's Blockheads, the Laurel and Hardy film from that it, year. It is so 
funny. <laughs> it is so good. Look at what I have here. Oh <laughs> I okay, so good friend Maddie to our podcast co-host. She gave me this one year for Christmas. Um, I guess her brother kept um, Laurel because I only have Hardy here. <laughs> That's yeah. sweet. But no, Blockheads is incredibly funny. Um, and if anybody can tell me where I can find it on like DVD or Blu-ray, please let me know because I would like to own it. But the football scene with the football falling from, yeah, it's like, oh, I kept laughing. And we uh, we put it back. We rewinded it just so I could see pain. I don't know. It's hilarious. <laughs> I love Laurel and Hardy, though. This is one of my favorites of them, too. Like, this is the end scene in the in the apartment is so funny when they're starting to. Yeah, I don't want to say too much, but like they're just starting to tear things apart. And it's just so funny. The chair, I I could not stop laughing. I would say pretty underrated effects, too. Like mm. that apartment yeah. scene where uh, it, it's really impressive and a great score, which I believe was Oscar nominated. The score yeah. was so. And, and we don't get into like full personals, but I always like to throw in something here. I believe I nominated for production design only mm. because the apartment is like the never ending going up apartment where just there's a lot of things on each floor for them. Yeah, it's very funny and it's literally 57 minutes long. There's no reason to not check it out. So uh, next one we have on the list here is Carefree. So when like reading reviews for this on Letterboxd, I guess it's not one of the bigger ones of uh, a Stair and Rogers for like super hardcore fans, but I liked it a lot. I mean, it's not like your typical, Hey, we got to dance together thing. It's, I don't know. It's really good. I liked it. I liked it too. Yeah. I, there, I mean, there's no, you're not going to write home about any of the musical numbers in this, but it's fun. Um, mm. And I thought it has more plot than you usually find from a Stair Rogers film. Nice. So our next one here is one of many versions of A Christmas Carol. I admit I have not seen this one, so. It's decent. Decent. I don't know. I own it only because I think it is only less. It's an hour, hour, three minutes. It's not that long. Nice. Perfect. Next one we have here is Ferdinand the Bowl. It is so good. Okay, let me tell you how good it is. It's just so damn good. It's cute. It's adorable. It's a Disney short that you can find on Disney+. Plus. Okay, don't watch the 2017 movie. You just need this little, like, six-minute thing. All right? Freaking love it. Don't watch the... Don't watch the John Cena version? What? Okay, but at the same time, (laughs) I did enjoy the John Cena version. (laughs) The Oscar nominated John Cena. <laughs> uh, next one up here is Holiday, which we've mentioned multiple times on this episode, but uh, another romantic comedy with um, Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. I actually just watched it last night and it, it's a far cry from bringing up baby, but I still really enjoyed it and found it really nice. So. Yeah, I, I, like holiday i love bringing it baby uh but katherine hepburn is great in both of these movies this is a weird yes. like this is a tricky part and the it's a remake of a 1930 film and the original was nominated for best actress um with anne harding and who's also very good in that film but it's a weird part but it's i i i don't can't picture many other actors being able to pull this off as well mm. but yeah it's just after watching like bring it baby in philadelphia story it's not the same yeah I agree. Next one we have here is How to Read. 
Uh, it's like a short film with Robert Benchley. I don't oh, know. Oh yeah. Yeah, I love yeah. seeing his uh shorts every time they come on like TCM. But it it's very I feel for him because it is hard to read. And especially how he tries to read in bed. I feel that because it is impossible to read in bed. There's no good way to sit. You had uh you had that as part of one of your your first classics challenge, I believe, on Letterboxd. Uh, yes. Yeah. Go back to the classics challenge. <laughs> awesome. Well, next up we have Kentucky, which I kind of meant to get to because it did win Best Supporting Actor, but I didn't see. Um, have the two of you seen this one? It's, yeah, it's a movie. It's weird to see Loretta. It's one of like only like four films Loretta Young ever did in color, which is. Yeah, so it's weird to see learning. I always find Walter Brennan to be fascinating on screen. This is his second of third Oscars. Like, you can never quite tell how old he is. He's always somehow 125. Wait, um, you talking about me? <laughs> he's like 44 in this movie, but he looks like he's like been, he's centuries old and he always somehow <laughs> looks that old. He's the biggest, grumpiest asshole in this entire movie, too. Like, he does, he reminds me of a customer where I work. Nothing but complaining. It might be. I mean, Walter Brennan is ageless. It could be that customer. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, next up we have here is Listen, Darling. Uh, it's a Judy Garland movie with also Freddie Bartholomew, Mary Astor, and Walter Pigeon. And it's it's fine in the sense that I hate the plot. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. The plot is nonsensical because they kidnap their mother in order for her not to marry a guy. This is from my original letterbox review. So they kidnap the mother, but then the mother's okay with the kidnapping and they go on their merry way. Okay. Like, okay. And I'm pretty sure that this movie is referenced in the Judy movie with Renee Zellweger. Oh, all right. Yeah, in terms of, because um, one of the child actors in this, let's see, uh, well, one of the child actors in this sort of went the same way as her. A lot of uh, substance abuse issues later in his life. So, But there's really there's two really good songs in this, I will say. And it's Judy, so you gotta love her. Well, going from one Judy film to another, next we have Love Finds Andy Hardy. I, I've never seen any of these for one particular reason that listeners of our podcast might pinpoint but um yeah how is this one if if you do have a mickey rooney allergy which is a known condition uh, <laughs> it's still um it's this is one of the better andy hardy films like this and you don't need to watch andy hardy out of order if you just want to watch this one um but it has judy garland as well as lana turner in a very early role very very young lana turner um, and they're both good and will carry you through to the end uh, of the, yeah. If you if you can just stand Mickey Rooney, like there, there are some elements worthwhile in Love Finds Andy Hardy. And it's, if you don't like this, you won't like the rest of the series because this is definitely one of the better ones. Okay. Have you seen all, have you seen all like 95 Andy Hardy movies? I have not seen all 95. <laughs> if anyone has, they, yeah, God bless them. But no, I've seen, when, I, when they do marathons and TCM, I'll catch some. Yeah, when TCM shows them in marathons, they go hardcore because they're like, we're going to show them for the next two days. They do. <laughs> All right. Next, we have Mickey's Trailer. Another delightful short film on Disney that you can see. Um, it's Mickey, a trailer, Goofy and Donald, and I love it so much. All right. Perfect. 
next we have of human hearts okay so this is me this was my worst film of 1938 so <laughs> if either of you are a fan of this movie but it was it is proof that the citadel is could could have been like more uh boring as a medical drama uh jimmy stewart plays a jerk in the film like basically the worst son in the world his father is like the worst Bula Bondi is this mother she's Oscar nominee which is why I caught it um but there's no redeeming qualities of this and it's weird to see Jimmy Stewart playing so someone so unlikable which even when he's playing like someone that's like problematic he's still like Jimmy Stewart this is yeah I don't I don't recommend it but it is Oscar nominee if you're a completionist. <laughs> I'm pretty sure too that in reading on Vivacious Lady, which we'll talk about in a second, he like got sick and then went to go make this movie. Oh. I'm pretty sure that's what I read. And then Beulah Bondi, you said, is in it? Who is also his mom in It's a Wonderful Life. And Mrs. yeah, she's better in both of those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's, there should be warning signs in front of this movie. <laughs> All right. Well, next up, we have Reefer Madness. You know what's great? Reefer Madness, the movie musical. Okay, <laughs> That is a five-star movie that I try to get everybody to watch. and Nobody has even attempted. And this is another movie. I don't know. I've, I've only seen this once, and I didn't care for it. Does anybody really care for this movie? Does anybody honestly give a shit? I was going to say, I've, I've obviously heard of the musical. I'm sure you've mentioned it to me multiple times before, but I was not familiar with this movie at all. So, Wait, you didn't know that there was like an OG thing? No, had no oh. idea. And it also has like a religious background in it because it was funded by like a religious group too. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, yeah, ugh, we don't talk about it. <laughs> Next up, we have The Shining Hour. Is this me? Oh, I put this, didn't I? It's a Joan Crawford movie. I don't know. Oh. She wants a man. She wants another man. Boom, Joan. <laughs> All right. Next up is St. Martin's Lane. I put this one. So this is also called Sidewalks of London. Um, it has two. It's depending on where you're where you're at in, on the globe. Uh, it's a really great deep cut British film. This is the only time Vivian Lee and Charles Lawton were in the same movie together. Um, and I'd never heard of this before we started, uh, you know, getting ready for the 1938. And so I was trying to find some deep cuts. And this is really good. It's a really good movie. Um, it's not a comedy. I think it's described as a comedy on IMDb. It's not. It's not supposed to be funny. It's pretty serious. But they're both really excellent in the roles. Uh, Lawton plays this, like... Uh, guy they call him a busker but essentially he performs oratory on the street for money and then Vivian Lee plays a pickpocket and they become friends and uh, it's about what happens afterwards it's really good and I don't know why more people aren't like why this hasn't been more celebrated because it's it's great nice where did you find it um I it rented it off of I think Amazon or Google Play one of the two but it's it's on there to rent that's cool perfect Next up, we have Three Comrades. This is me again. Um, so Three Comrades is the only film that F. Scott Fitzgerald ever wrote and was nominated for Best Actress for Margaret Sullivan. 
um, at the Oscars and she's very good. Um, it's sort of this love square. She has three men going after her, but she's also dying of tuberculosis. And um, it's also about uh, the lead up to, it, it takes place in Germany. And so it's about sort of the rise of fascism in the 1930s. It's very interesting and pretty intellectual, but um, like if you if you can imagine sort of what F. Scott Fitzgerald would be like in a film, um, it's it's that kind of intellectual level, and but it's very good and very melodramatic. So if yeah, if your tolerance for melodrama is low, it's not a good movie. But if you like melodramas, it's I, I liked it. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I, I yeah I recommend. Great. Well, one that Christian mentioned, uh, Vivacious Lady. Yes, it's very delightful. It has Ginger Rogers and Jimmy Stewart in it. Just, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's delightful. And I think you'd really like it too. Nice. It's always on TCM. <laughs> yeah. Sure was it though in the last couple months because I had an interlibrary <laughs> loan. <on it. laughs> uh, well, our last one here is one that I mentioned on the last episode under Western Stars. Uh, it's It's my least favorite of 1938 not that i've seen many but roy rogers movie i like i said i can i can appreciate a b western what it's going for but this one's just bad it, it's it's so bad so don't recommend all right well that is the end of our honorable slash dishonorable mentions there um as we did last time christian put out a question on twitter for our followers there to say what some of their favorite movies of 1938 were and we got a lot of great responses. So we heard from Chance at How Do You All, uh, whose favorite movie was Jezebel, um, when we talked about in the last episode. Um, we also heard from Gunner at Chekhov's Gunner, uh, who mentioned Springing Up Baby, Jezebel, Adventures of Robin Hood, Port of Shadows, uh, Labette's Humane, and The Baker's Wife. Uh, Owen Daly, Mentioned Bring Up Baby once again, Grand Illusion, Angels with Dirty Faces, Robin Hood, Holiday, Pygmalion, Dance Program, A Yank at Oxford, You Can't Take It With You, and The Dawn Patrol, which I believe they said was actually their top 10 of the year. So that was cool. Uh, at Robin is Watching said Hotel du Nord. More poetic realism there, Brett. Ah, see, that one I'm not familiar with. You check that one out. Uh Guest in front of the podcast, Toby said, bringing up baby, the lady vanishes, blockheads, and Ferdinand the bull. And of course, Zay mentioned bringing up baby as well as lady vanishes. I believe on a previous podcast, Zay said the lady vanishes was like the most underrated Hitchcock. So I'm sure they're glad we discussed it. Uh, Cody Derricks at Cody Monster 91 said, you can't take it with you. I think Cody mentioned it still brings a lot of laughs um, after all these years. And then Gabe at Gabe the Joker said, uh, Pygmalion, Bring Up Baby, Adventures of Robin Hood, Angels with Dirty Faces, and Grand Illusion. Got all the way down and finally got a Grand Illusion mention. Uh, Frank Mendoza at Film Buff 1974 said, and uh, another guest of ours in front of the podcast, KB at Center Seat Pod, said The Lady Vanishes as well. So a lot of love for the Hitchcock film. I feel like the only reason we didn't see a whole lot of Grand Illusion is because people will consider it 37 as 37. well. 37, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, the Oscars. All right. Well, now we are moving on to one of our favorite segments, and that is our personal nominees and winners from the year. 
we are going to start as always with the screenplays, which should be correct because we shared a document where we listed out all the adapted and originals. So if I get called out, I'm referencing that. Um, <laughs> we're going to, I'll start us off this time. We're going to start with best adapted screenplay. And this is what I've got. So my number five, I have Port of Shadows. Number four, You Can't Take It With You. Number three, Angels with Dirty Faces. Number two, Pygmalion. And my number one is, of course, Bringing Up Baby. John, let's go on to you. What do you got here? I'm so excited. Uh, my number five is Three Comrades. Number four is Pygmalion. Number three is Holiday. Number two is The Lady Vanishes. And number one, Bringing Up Baby. All right. I skimmed the document, so... <laughs> All right. My number five is Vivacious Lady. Number four is Pygmalion. Number three, The Lady Vanishes. Number two, You Can't Take It With You. And my number one is Bringing Up Bebe. All right. Moving on to Best Original Screenplay. Surprisingly, I was able to fill this up with five, even though most from this year were adapted. So at number five, I've got Alexander's Ragtime Band. Number four, I have Test Pilot. Number three, Boys Town. Number two, Blockheads. Number one, Grand Illusion. Wait, wait, can you say that again? Say it really fast. Alexander's Ragtime Band, Test Pilot, Boys Town, Blockheads, and Grand Illusion. Gotcha. Okay, go ahead. Woo! Okay. <laughs> Seems something here. It's an experiment. <laughs> John, take us away. All right, at number five um, for original screenplay, I have Carefree, number four, Test Pilot, number three, Blockheads, number two, St. Martin's Lane, and number one, I have Grand Illusion. Okay, um, so the reason I asked for it because I was like, whoa, wait, this sounds like mine, but it's not. There's oh, just okay. one difference here. <laughs> um, so number five is Test Pilot, number four, Carefree, three, Boys Town, two, Blockheads, and my winner is also Grand Illusion. Nice. So if I, if I see carefree mine, that might end up on mine as well. So, all right, moving on to our acting categories here, we're going to go to best supporting performance. And so I do have 10 nominees here. I got a full list. And so starting at number 10, I have Olivia de Havilland for the adventures of Robin hood. Number nine, I have Barry Fitzgerald for bringing up baby number eight, Ruth Donnelly for a slight case of murder. Seven, I have great Humphrey Bogart for Angels with Dirty Faces. Uh, number six, I have Eric von Stroheim for Grand Illusion. Number five, Marie Lore for Pygmalion. Number four, May Robeson for Bringing Up Baby. Number three, Spring Byington for You Can't Take It With You. Number two, I have Pierre Fresnay for Grand Illusion. And I mentioned I love him. Number one, I have Michelle Simone for Port of Shadows. All right. Am I, I'm up here. So supporting, I, I also have 10. Uh, number 10, I have Dame May Witty for The Lady Vanishes. Number nine, May Robeson for Bringing It Baby. Eight, Barry Fitzgerald for Bringing It Baby. Seven, Basil Rathbone for The Adventures of Robin Hood. Six, Charles Ruggles for Bringing It Baby. Five, Eric von Stroheim for Grand Illusion. Four, John Garfield for Four Daughters. Three, Faye Bainter for Jezebel. 
to Pierre Fresne for Grand Illusion. And I also have Claude Rains for The Adventures of Robin Hood for number one. Very nice. Christian, how about you? Okay, so my number 10 is list here. Uh, Walter Cadlett for Bringing a Baby. My number nine is Nissa for Bringing a Baby. <sighs> I, I could do it. I nominated Miss Piggy once, all right? <laughs> Number eight is Pierre Fresnay for La Grande Illusion. Number seven is Paul Lucas for The Lady Vanishes. Number six, Edward Arnold for You Can't Take It With You. Like him in that. Number five, Basil Rathbone for The Adventures of Robin Hood. Four, Claude Rains for The Adventures of Robin Hood. Three, Marcel Dalio for La Grande Illusion. And number two, Dame May Witty for The Lady Vanishes, and my ultimate winner is Eric von Stroheim for Grand Illusion, winning his second after Sunset Boulevard for me. I can't disagree with any of these, except y'all are making me feel so bad as a Claude Range champion for leaving him off my list. I, I had him right there, and yeah, he was so close. But all right, going on to lead performer. At number 10, I have Catherine Hepburn for Holiday. <laughs> Sigh of relief from Christian. <laughs> <laughs> number nine, I have Michelle Morgan for Port of Shadows. Number eight, I have Spencer Tracy for Boys Town. Number seven, Gene Arthur for You Can't Take It With You. Number six, Leslie Howard for Pygmalion. Number five, Wendy Hiller for Pygmalion. Number four, James Cagney for Angels with Dirty Faces. Number three, I have Jean Gabin, a tie between Port of Shadows and Grand Illusion because I could not decide. Number two, Catherine Hepburn for bringing up baby. Number one is Lionel Barrymore for You Can't Take It With You. I can't deny how incredible that performance is. So DP, apologize. I, I, have, I have created controversy once again, but that's what I've got. I'm getting tinnitus in my ears right now. <laughs> Oh, we love Lionel Barrymore. We, we, we gushed about him. He's great. All right, let's hear what you guys got. Let's, uh, John, go ahead. I'll go ahead here while, um, while Christian recovers. Uh, I have at number 10, I have Charles Lawton for uh, St. Martin's Lane. Uh, for number nine, I have Edward G. Robinson for A Slight Case of Murder. Eight, I have Vivian Lee for St. Martin's Lane. Seven, I have Margaret Sullivan for Three Comrades. Six, Betty Davis for Jezebel. Five, Wendy Hiller for Pygmalion. Four, Errol Flynn for The Adventures of Robin Hood. Three, Catherine Hepburn for Holiday. Uh, two, Cary Grant for Bringing It Baby. And one, I have Catherine Hepburn for Bringing It Baby. All right, Christian. Four it is. All right. <laughs> At um, <clears throat> number 10, I have Catherine Hepburn, number nine, Catherine Hepburn, number eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. Anyway, at number 10, I have James Stewart for You Can't Take It With You. At number nine, Michael Redgrave for The Lady Vanishes. At number eight, Gene Arthur for You Can't Take It With You. Number seven, both Laurel and Hardy for Blockheads because they're one. At number six, Leslie Howard for Pygmalion. Number five, Brett's winner for whatever reason, Lionel Barrymore, or you can't take it with you. And number four, Wendy Hiller for Pygmalion. And number three, Jean Gabin for The Grand Illusion. Number two, Gary Grant for Bringing a Baby. My ultimate winner, number one, the best there ever was, Catherine Hepburn for Holiday. 
Dare to be different. Dare to be different. <laughs> it's bringing a baby. <laughs> I mean, she's good in both, so it would work. <laughs> but after all this, all of it. No, it's bringing a baby. You know what? No, of course. The best leading performance, The Train from The Lady Vanishes. I don't disagree. No the argument. The Train does such a great job. But I, I, one day, one day I will make my favorite performances list of all time, and Catherine Hepburn and Bringing a Baby will be top five performances. Okay. All right. I know who my number one is. Look out, Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. It's like John read my mom. <laughs> Wait, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. All right, moving on to Best Director, uh, going up five to one. I have Michael Curtiz at five for Angels with Dirty Faces. Number four, Howard Hawks for Bringing Up Baby. Number three, Frank, Frank Capra for You Can't Take It With You. Number two, I have Michael Curtiz once again, this time with William Keeley for The Adventures of Robin Hood. And my number one is Jean Renoir for Grand Illusion. Don't give me that face. Come on. It's a classic. I'm not. I'm just, I, there's one obvious thing missing, but okay. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I see. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. I, he's my number six. Number six. John, take us away. All right, number five, I have Frank Versage for Three Comrades. Number four, I have Michael Curtiz and William Cayley for The Adventures of Robin Hood. Number three, I have Alfred Hitchcock for The Lady Vanishes. Number two, Jean Renoir for Grand Illusion. And number one, I have Howard Hawks for Bringing Up Baby. Hmm. All right, my number five is Michael Curtiz and William Cayley for The Adventures of Robin Hood. And number four, uh, John G. Blystone for Blockheads. Number three, Howard Hawks for Bringing a Baby. And number two, Jean Renoir for Le Grand de Dijon. And my winner is Alfred Boom Boom Hitchcock for The Lady Vanishes. Very nice. I give him like four others, so I don't feel too bad. <laughs> All right. Going on to our big category, Best Picture. Starting out at number 10, I have holiday number nine i have the lady vanishes number eight i have pygmalion number seven i have blockheads number six port of shadows number five angels with dirty faces number four the adventures of robin hood number three bringing up baby number two you can't take it with you and number one grand illusion all right <laughs> Okay, I can take, I can take, I can take your number one winner. But bringing a baby, be one below, you can't take it with you. That just seems fake. I recall us raving about this movie when we discussed on the last episode, and somehow I'm the only one that carried through with. But you know, all right. I mean, I mean it's I, I love it. We're talking about one, one of my favorites. John, take us away. All right, number ten, blockheads. Number nine, three comrades. Number eight, a, slice ca- a slight case of murder. Number seven, you can't take it with you. Number six, Pygmalion. Number five, St. Martin's Lane. Four, Grand Illusion. Three, The Lady Vanishes. Two, The Adventures of Robin Hood. And number one, Bringing a Baby. All right. First of all, I want to I want to say this St. Martin's Lane, I want to see this now. Mm-hmm. This is very interesting. Same. Okay. So my number 10 is Test Pilot. 
Number nine, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Number eight, Vivacious Lady. Number seven, Carefree. Number six, Pygmalion. Number five, You Can't Take It With You. At number four, Grand Illusion. Number three, Blockheads. Number two, The Lady Vanishes. And number one, Bringing Up Baby. All right. Some differences here. Just kidding. All courtesy of me. Uh, no, Th those were, there was always a lot of fun. And this was obviously um, a really fun year to go over and nice collection of very different movies throughout, um, I would say. So got some variation in there. Thanks as always uh, to everyone for listening. Uh, feel free to, as always, rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We always appreciate that, as well as follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. Um, thanks, as always, to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our theme music for all these episodes. And then, of course, thanks to you for listening. We will be back once again next time, where we will be discussing the Best Picture Race of 1977. So really excited for those. I love the 70s. That'll be fun. We will have Anthony back with us who appeared on our last 70s episode. So, and of course, thank you, John, um, once again for joining us this time. This was a lot of fun um, and glad you're able to be on here with us. Any final thoughts from you? Any places on the internet where people can find you? Yeah. So um, if you want to find me, uh, my blog is The Mini Rantings of John. We talk a lot about classic cinema. And I just want to thank you, too. This was such a fun, fun experience. And so I, I'm a, like I said, I'm a fan of the podcast. And so this was really fun to be able to be a part of it. Very nice. Christian, any final thoughts from you? Um, John, you finally get me to say to you, the check is in the mail. So. <laughs> as I say to all the guests. Um, but no, thank you so much again. It's been an honor. And it's been a real honor to meet you too, because it's just like a Twitter conversation all the time. And it's like, oh, we get to meet somebody. So that's cool. But yeah, you can, as always, you can find me on scenestealers.com. I have a couple of reviews on there. I'll have some more coming up. I watched a couple things. And find me on Letterboxd, because I'm super active on there too. And it is ChristianAlec94 is my letterbox name. And underscore Christian Alec underscore is my Twitter because I'm also on there. Very nice. As always, thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next time. Mm -hmm.